T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Welcome to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. This is just another episode with just some thoughts about um, the connection between nuclear weapons and UFOs. Um, I... I'm going to play a couple of uh, tapes. Um, I'm going to tape, play a tape. Um, I was talking last session about how it started for me, the connection between nuclear weapons and the sightings in Carmen, Manitoba, which I didn't realize for 35 years. Uh, we did an interview last year with Bob Diemert, who runs the airport at Carmen, and we are going to um, play that tape um, in this series later on. And he talks about... Um, encounter, an encounter he had with a U.S. Air Force uh, personnel regarding the nuclear weapons, and um, it was from him that I got this idea. So, when it occurred to me that there may be a connection to nuclear weapons to what was happening in Carmen, and that's really the only thing that really explained why these things were in this place in the middle of nowhere, um, I started to look at other UFO incidents to see whether there was a connection. Now, Robert Hastings has already brought this up, has written a book. There's been a couple of books written about nuclear weapons and UFOs, the connection between them. One of the things I found significant was the 1940 reference that um, Robert Hastings brings up about the UFOs being over Hanford, which would indicate that already um, they knew what was going on or there was a connection between um, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and UFOs. And I mentioned the fact that experiencers, 40% of all experiencers say they knew the answer to everything in the universe, which goes to this idea that the intelligence, I believe, has a lot more knowledge about what was going, what is going on, because the experiencers will say they knew the answer to everything, and they're given access to the field by whatever the intelligence is that they're dealing with on board the craft or however they've come in contact with the intelligence, which would indicate that they have basically able to tap into this field of all knowledge. And so we combine that with this idea about random events, that the more I looked at UFOs as I went through the years, the more I believed that um, UFO sightings were not random events either. In 1975, I think everybody believed UFOs were random events. And at that point, if you had seen a UFO, um, you were basically considered crazy by, you know, the general public. But if you saw two UFOs, or claimed to see two UFOs, 
even the UFO community thought you were crazy because everybody thought it was a random event. There's, there's, I mean, it's very hard to see one, let alone two or three or many. And that's why um, Billy Meyer and people like that in 1975, when he started, were so badly ridiculed because here was this guy who was claiming he was seeing them all the time. He was taking photographs. And that's not the way people thought at the time. People believed this was sort of a random event. The more I think you look at it, the more I think you look at the evidence, the more you see that sightings are there for a reason. Now, what they are, I won't get into, but um, the fact that the people, I will always say to people when they have a sighting, I'll say, may I ask you a question, what was it doing? And generally the answer is, wasn't doing anything, it's just there. Uh, did, did you think that maybe you were meant to see this? Well, yeah, there seemed to be a connection. People will confirm, yeah, there is this sort of connection. That the, and that's what happened to us. The UFO really wasn't doing anything. It just happened to be there. And then when I found out that the guy had filmed the thing, uh, that got me to go, this big tape that they caught this thing jumping off the ground, when I realized that he had pulled the trigger just as the thing jumped in the sky, I thought, that's not random either. So the more I've gone along, the more I believe that there really is nothing random. That goes back to this idea of... of um, general reality and consciousness and this idea that the electron um, moves around in whatever pattern around the nucleus. And so the original electrons, say in a, in a hydrogen atom, been zipping around at 2200 kilometers per second for 13.7 billion years. And the question is, how do they, how does this work? How does this continue to, to um, do this thing? And where did it learn this pattern? And that's where you get into, you know, people say, well, this is just a random thing that the electrons just accidentally learned how to do this at, at the time of the Big Bang. And Terence McKenna would say, this is basically the limit case of credulity in the modern world. If you believe that, what is that you can't believe? Uh, and so these kind of ideas that we hold in terms of, I mean, another example I always use is the electron or the, the, um, cell. So, a cell is created, and then that cell will immediately make a, another cell. And within a couple of hours, a hundred trillion atoms will have gathered um, and gone together. And people actually want to believe that these hundred trillion atoms just accidentally came together, banged into each other at a certain angle at the at the right time in the right place, and then created life to create another cell. And then the random accident happened again and again. And uh, it just keeps going. That makes no sense. It, it appears almost uh, back to this statement I think I had in the first session was uh, Max Planck saying, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about the atom this much. There is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force, which brings the particles of an atom to a vibration and holds this minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force is the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Which comes to this idea that the, none of this stuff is happening by accident. It's happening inside consciousness. And um, there's something controlling and this pattern. That things are being built on pattern rather than being uh, built based on random patterns of things just banging into each other repeatedly. Um, now, with the Carmen sightings, when I had mine, one of the, the pieces of evidence that seems to indicate the nukes had something to do with it was um, 1975 was when the main sightings occurred, and that was when they had these 100 new nuclear missiles in North Dakota. Uh, 
after 1976, they seemed to go away after they the, the missiles out, and there has never been a sighting. There was one or, I think, two sightings there last year, but uh, so you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in one year, and then from 1976 till 2020, there basically wasn't a single sighting there. So that would tend to indicate that there was something very special about 1975, and the only thing that really fits is this uh, anti-ballistic missile unit that was put in just south of the border. Uh, again, we go to this idea about consciousness, that um, we start to see that all these things are tied together and that consciousness is fundamental. And that's what Max Planck said as well. As well. I regard f consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as a derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything that we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. So that, again, this is this idea that everything is being formed out of consciousness, which would tend to indicate to me that there there isn't this random thing outside of consciousness. It's all consciousness. It's all being controlled. It's all being manifested by this um, great mind, or however you want to call it. And the other thing that... Um, Max Planck said, if science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature, that is because in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. And that's something that we sort of leave out often in analyzing paranormal phenomena is this idea that um, is brought up by Max Planck and also brought up by uh, John Wheeler. It's a participatory universe. We always think that there's things happening outside of ourselves that are influencing us, that we're a product of our environment, when in fact we are the ones that are creating, manifesting the stuff around us. It's the idea of the observer effect, that we are a big part of what happens around us, rather than being a victim. Um, now again, we go to this idea that um, the UFOs may be appearing based upon things that are happening in the world, that um, when it happens, these things... Uh, manifest and that if the events hadn't happened uh, we wouldn't have the the, the UFOs because the UFOs may have been around for thousands of years but they really started just basically when we started to develop the atomic bomb when we detonated the atomic bomb it really went uh, crazy and we, then we see this this um, sort of an increased pattern which would again tend to indicate that it has something to do with something that changed say from 1940 on that made these things become even more um, more popular or more uh, well-known. Um, and the idea that it's all one thing is another concept that I've always brought up that has, um, it's repeated over and over again. It's the number one message that the experiencers report is this oneness message, that everything is actually here now, it's all one thing. This idea that uh, there may not be any time and space, it's all consciousness, it's all here. Betty Andreasen, there was six books written on her. She had her first experience, and her husband had her first experience in 1946. And she's had a lot of different encounters with what she calls the one. And uh, under regression, she said, I understand that everything is one. Everything fits together. Everything is one. It's beautiful, no matter what it is. So this is this oneness message. Now, we start going through the, the events, you start seeing these, these um, examples of how there seems to be a link. When you start to look at the UFO event and then you look for a nuclear link, a lot of times the link does appear. Uh, we have the, the Hanford example that, that Robert Hastings brought up about the UFOs being over there. 
there was actually a map produced, and, and I haven't seen it for a while, but there was a map produced by the U.S. Air Force that actually showed um, UFO activity, I think about 1949 and 1950, across the United States, and you see all the um, um, sort of the, the bases and the places where they produced plutonium and uh, Los Alamos and all these places where they did built the weapons and stuff like that, and this connection. So they've already, they already knew this connection that... Uh, Whatever this phenomena was, it was um, linked to military and to nuclear weapons. Uh, there's already there's been a um, uh, a new case that's been brought up by um, Paula Harris and Jacques Vallée, this 1945 case, which occurred a month after Trinity, right near Trinity, and um, they're making the assumption that this had had something to do with um, the atomic Trinity test, the first bomb test. Um, I have a photo that was given to me by a Japanese um, um, journalist. Um, I've shown it a few times. I've posted it a few times. And this was um, photos from a um, Marine who had been, they'd moved him in to look at the damage in Nagasaki days after the, the bomb had been dropped. And he took a whole series of photographs in and around the harbor coming in. And uh, it wasn't until the end of the century, about 1995 or 2000, that he was moving these photographs, I think, uh, to a marine archives in Washington, and that's when they discovered these UFOs in the photograph. And the one that, that I've posted numerous times is, is a pretty clear, it's a daylight uh, disc over the harbor in Nagasaki, and this is just as they detonate the atomic bomb, which again brings back this connection. But then we go to 1952, and uh, 1952, uh, I guess the most prominent um, story is that before 1952, there was really nobody, there was, in, there was people reporting um, alien beings, but the first sort of report of beings who actually interacted and talked to people was George Adamski, and that occurred... Um, only a couple days after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb in 1952. Now, that was the first test of the hydrogen bomb. And the difference between the hydrogen bomb and the atomic bomb has sometimes been said that the, the atomic bomb can't destroy the world, but the world changed when we detonated the hydrogen bomb. And at that point, we did have um, the capability to actually uh, take, us, uh, take us off the planet. So Adamski, you see this, this connection, I mean, it's basically within days of this detonation of the bomb. And of course, the message by the beings that he's interacting with are basically stopped the nuclear weapons. It was like, this is a turning point. In his 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, former U.S. Air Force captain and Project Blue Book chief, uh, Edward Ruppelt wrote this, and this indicates that they are they knew as well that, that UFOs had this connection to nuclear weapons. In he, he writes, in November or December 1952, the U.S. Air Force was going to test the first H-bomb during Operation Ivy. Some people in the Pentagon had the idea that there were beings, earthly or otherwise, who might be interested in our activities in the Pacific. Navy and Air Force security uh, forces who went out to the tests in the Pacific, were thoroughly briefed to look for UFOs. So you see that um, this is no surprise. They uh, probably had a map, and that's why I say like, we're, I'm going to have a discussion with 
David Perkins on this connection between um, cattle mutilations and um, being downwind and downstream from nuclear power, power activities, um, that you may not know why an, an animal uh, was mutilated in a certain area, um, but I always maintain that there may be people in Washington who absolutely know exactly why that cow appeared where. Because uh, David Perkins, he's got the material, and he's, he's got these maps where he superimposes uh, cancer rates over top of the areas where catamulations take place, and he says it's a direct match. If he's picked up this pattern, you can be sure that the, um, the people who have the best knowledge of what's going on inside the government or inside the contractors uh, would be aware of this connection uh, to nuclear weapons and to catamulations. Now, in 1954, um, there was um, um, a very high high yield nuclear thermonuclear weapon test that was done, and this is part of this is the Operation Castle. Now, the first one they did was Castle Bravo. And one of the connections you get to nuclear weapons here is that everybody always tells the story about um, Eisenhower going to Edwards Air Force Base. Well, that happened eight days before this test. So here's a here's a a pretty direct connection. So people would always tell the story that Eisenhower had a meeting with the Greys and that he had made an agreement to exchange high-tech stuff for um, the ability to abduct people and they signed a treaty. And I say that's totally stupid because, um, number one, if they break the treaty, what are you going to do? Take them to court? Uh, number two, um, the the Greys, if, if they weren't, they weren't around until 61, but if they were around at that time, they can abduct whoever they want. Nobody's going to stop them. They just, they're not going to ask permission. They just do what they want. And the third thing is, why would the Greys make a treaty to give uh, advanced weapons to the American military when they're just going to turn around and try to shoot them down? None of that makes sense. The original letter that came out in 1954, uh, the event happened February the 20th, two weeks later. Uh, there was a... Um, a UFO group in California that was circulating this uh, story that um, Eisenhower met with etheric beings. Now that makes that makes more sense, and I'm really not too sure whether Eisenhower met with anybody. But if he did meet with anybody, I'm pretty sure it had to do with uh, this test uh, eight days later. And this number one message that everybody was repeating in the 1950s was from the beings was to stop stop the nuclear war, stop the nuclear testing, and so, um, eight days after Eisenhower had that encounter, and I heard that they, they had, the one story was that they had told him to stop the testing, and he said, no, we're, don't tell us what to do, we're just going to go ahead and do it. So this test happened in the Marshall Islands, and it was Castle Bravo, and it was supposed to be five megatons, and they miscalculated one of the ingredients in the bomb, and it turned out to be 15 megatons, it's the biggest uh, nuclear disaster ever. Uh, the, the Russians did one 50 megatons, but it was in the air, so it didn't pull up um, all sorts of ground material and create this huge cloud of radioactive fallout. This was 15 megatons. They actually had to evacuate the guys who were 20 miles away on another island. Uh, they had no uh, suits. They had to wear uh, take um, their, their, the fallout was falling down like uh, like snow. And they had to put uh, bed sheets on, sort of protect themselves. They brought in helicopters to get these guys off this island. The wind was going in the right, wrong direction. It contaminated a Japanese fishing trawler. 
and it contaminated one whole island, and then they got into a lot of trouble by saying, well, let's see how they uh, turn it into a, a test for radioactive fallout. So they left these people on the island for 48 hours before they evacuated them and made this really horrible comment about, let's see how the savages react to nuclear weapons testing. Those people, I don't believe, are still back on that island. So you had this really, really bad test that went off. Um, and at, at that point, um, you had this in incident with Eisenhower eight days before. And um, Robert's, um, Robert Hastings also reports that um, he was a pro, there was UFO sightings. Um, there's um, sailors, Marines who had seen UFOs, all of them told this one guy who was reporting to Hastings that it was oval-shaped, bright orange, silent, and had buzzed the ship from bow to stern because they had these ships in the area that would keep people out of the area where the test was and to watch the test and monitor it and measure it and all this kind of stuff. So one of these ships was uh, buzzed by the uh, UFO. The eyewitness accounts matched almost exactly with information about sightings as recorded in the USS Curtis deck log. So this is one of the, the ships that was involved. Um, and then uh, there, there's a there's actually a document on the internet that's uh, again refers to this 1954 series of tests. There's reason to believe that the U.S. government knew that UFOs would appear at Operation Castle in the spring of 1954. One document attests to this. The document is the history of the Task Force 7.4, provisional for the month of April. 1954. Task Group 7.4 was part of the Joint Task Force 7, which was given the task of conducting the testing of thermonuclear weapons at the Marshall Islands in the spring of 1954. Task Group 7.4 was an organization of the U.S. Air Force under Colonel Earl Keeling, U.S. Air Force. The history of the task force um, on page 473 of the document tells what should be done in case of an outbreak of war during or on the site, of, in on-site phase of, of Castle. Pilots of aircraft engaged in missions other than those above will report unauthorized or unrecognized aircraft, sur surface vessels, or submarines. Such sightings shall be reported in detail to the AOC. Aircraft will report immediately, number one, Vital intelligence sightings in accordance with the provisions of JANUP 146. Number two, the sightings of any unidentified flying objects. So this was the document. This is, um, they anticipated this and people were told to record this and to document this. Um, now, we go ahead to um, 1962. Robert Hastings talks about this. Um, the connection, so you look at a world event like the Cuban Missile Crisis, then you look at um, where the UFO sightings, and um, he reports um, there's um, a, a case that happens, it gets reported to Robert Hastings, Loring Air Force Base where the B-52 uh, nuclear bombers would take off and land, and um, there was a, um, a report there um, of them following the B-52 in, uh, it's in it's in Robert Hastings' book. Um, there was uh, activity in New Mexico over the plutonium plants. 
Um, Hastings also reports there's a, I'm not sure if it was Nebraska or one of the Midwestern states where they had just opened some new nuclear silos and they were getting reports during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis as well. So this is the thing is that you have this connection between um, major world events where um, the Russians and the Americans will be on edge and thinking about nuclear weapons. That's what led me in, in, in 75 to think that even though they weren't using nuclear weapons, um, they may have been thinking about nuclear, using nuclear weapons to stop the Russians on this domino theory thing because they didn't have any troops in Southeast Asia to, uh, to stop them on the ground. And so even the, the thought of using nuclear weapons, and we do know that um, LeMay had actually talked about um, taking Cuba out uh, when they first discovered that they had the, the launchers in Cuba. So even this um, idea of people thinking about nuclear weapons and using them would, I think, maybe cause these UFOs to, um, to be involved. Now, um, we have later on, we'll have other ones like the Benowitz, which I, I always maintain. People always want to talk about Benowitz. They want to talk about how these guys drove this guy nuts and killed him, which was, again, just total distortion of the story. Uh, because Benowitz's story happened in 1979, and he lived to, I think, 2004. Uh, so he lived 25 years. I mean, nobody killed him in 1979 when this thing started. He lived to be an old man, and he was a chain smoker. The thing with Benowitz, the important part of the Benowitz story, is that um, Benowitz was reporting, if you see the original story, uh, he was reporting uh, UFOs over the Manzano Weapon Storage Area, which was the biggest repository of nuclear weapons in the world. It was, these weapons were stored, stored underground there, and that's what he was reporting. And that's why I think they had to go after him the way they had to um, move him off and, and disinform him and run a counterintelligence operation because that's one of the things they wouldn't want people to know is that this scientist guy outside the base was reporting UFOs over the nuclear weapons. This is uh, one of the stories that I don't, I don't think they really want out. Now we go again, now we go to, um, uh, 1966. Uh, LeMay is called at this time you have, you have, um, the one big event that happens, I'll mention here, is the West Westall School in Australia. But if you take a look at what's going on politically at that time, you see LeMay is call, calling for nuclear weapons um, to bomb North Vietnam back to the Stone Age. This is when they first send the, um, the B-52 bombers in, when they first um, started uh, carpet bombing the civilian areas in, in, in the um, North, North Vietnam, and on April the 6th, the Westall School incident occurs. Now, people now are sort of familiar with this, this school in, in Australia where this UFO um, lands. There's three UFOs, almost like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The one comes down, it lands, all these hundreds of kids are out there, the, some of the teachers are out there, and um, the Americans um, come in, or the, the first the Australians threaten this guy to keep quiet and then a year later the Americans come in and this is a study that I've talked about with President um, Johnson and um, he's interviewed by uh, James McDonald from the University of Arizona who was the one that requested the UFO study which was done by the White House and the, the interesting thing about that April 6th Westall School 
that happened on exactly the same day as the first congressional hearing on UFOs. Gerald Ford had had this incident occur in 19, uh, earlier in, in the, in the, uh, in the year before over Michigan, and he had demanded a, a congressional investigation. And, uh, that was the first, uh, first hearing it took place. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. It was, um, it was, uh, one of the, um, people that Ford had, um, gotten on board and they had this congressional hearing. It was exactly the same day as the West Hill School event. Um, well, it was chaired by U.S. Representative Al Mendel Rivers of South Carolina. The request for the congressional investigation had been made by House Republican leader and future U.S. President Gerald Ford of Michigan. So that um, the incident in Australia occurred at 10 o'clock in the morning, 10.15, that would have been 10, 15, the evening before in Washington. That was the day of the hearing. Um, as we said, like in, you have all these events that are happening around in April, um, which are pretty significant in terms of um, um, the, the, the Russians are making this cryptic uh, comment on the first of the month about national defense um, in announcing they had re recently constructed intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear submarines, along with other weapons that could destroy, destroy any planes and many rockets of the adversaries. Um, for the first time, North Vietnam has bombed on the 12th with uh, the B-52 carpet bombings when they start this. And on that day, um, they dropped 585 tons of bombs on the first day. So you got to remember all these events, the world is on edge. And the biggest event, I guess, that occurred, the West all occurred on the 6th, but on the 18th of the month, uh, the Cultural Revolution in China started. And the rumors and the figures are 70 million people, 80 million people were killed during the uh, Cultural Revolution. It started on the 18th of that month. Um, on the 7th of the month, the day after the Westall School, um, the United States finally recovered a hydrogen bomb that had been lost off the coast of Spain. After being raised uh, from the sea by a winch, the bomb was loaded into the rescue ship USS uh, Pet Petrol and shipped back to the United States. So they were recovering a, a, a lost hydrogen bomb as the Westall School thing occurred. Now, in 1967, this is one of the first ones that I, I had actually put some of this in the Charlie Red Star book. And because they wanted to drop 40,000 words from the book, I had to um, take some of this out. But I always wanted to see the connection with the Malmstrom. I said, what happened with Malmstrom? Malmstrom got shut down twice, first 10 missiles, then eight missiles. And that was the, the one incident occurred on March the 21st. So I wondered what event, world event was there that had caused this, um, this event to take place. Uh, again, it's the assumption and just a theory that UFOs not, not happen randomly. It's, it's reacting to something. Something happens somewhere. It's like a boil on the body. Uh, something goes wrong. The boil appears or the body heals itself that even though it's, it's an unconscious process, something is happening and something and something else happens in response to what you're doing. So I always, I thought it had to be the Six Day War, which was a pretty major thing, but it didn't happen until June the 5th. 
Then I realized that um, the Six Day War wasn't like the Israelis and the Egyptians out of bed, you know, got out of bed on the on the um, July fifth or uh, June the fifth or sixth and just started a war. It had started long before that. Um, and and the the other thing you start seeing these connections with again with Robert Hastings um, during that 1967 incident. Robert Hastings, 16 years old, and he's working at Monster. And he's picking garbage. He's working as a kid, as a janitor. And one of the people on the FAA who's watching the screens calls him over and he sees these UFOs on the screen. Now, later, he went back to talk to the guy. The guy didn't want to talk about it. But here you have this is this coincidence that Robert Hastings happened to be working there during the shutdown. Uh, his father had reported these UFOs were over the, the missile silos. Uh, so the, I figured the Six Day War seemed to be, it was, it was close but no cigar. Then when you started looking at the Six Day War, you see it, it was much more complicated. In fact, the whole thing really started up um, a couple days after the, the Maltstrom thing, uh, when the Israelis shot down six Syrian MiG jets. And then you see some of these other events that, that link in here. And what, one of the things that I discovered and you have to read a book called Foxbat over Demona to understand this whole story. These are two Israeli researchers who write this story up about uh, what the Sixth Day War was actually about. And it has to do with the Soviets, and it has to do with nuclear weapons. And the story actually starts in 1966 when an Israeli diplomat uh, gives a heads up to the Russians that Israel is going to assemble nuclear weapons. There's always been a thing whether they were going to do it, and it was undecided. But in 1966, uh, the um, Russians knew for sure that they were actually going to do it. They were going to, and they had, and they, they started developing a plan right in 1966 to take out Demona, which was the, the place where they were building the nuclear weapons inside Israel. So what they do, and this is the these Fox Bat over Demona book will tell this whole story. Um, they've already developed a MiG-25, which the Americans don't know actually exists. And um, what the idea is to use um, um, Egypt as a as a uh, front for the war, and it'll look like a war between Israel and Egypt. And what they were going to do, and they did manage to do it, is to get Israel to attack first. At which point, the Americans moved their all their ships out of the Mediterranean and it, it called for it called neutrality. So most people think that the Americans would have been defending the Israelis, but not in 1967. They were not really allied with the Israelites, or the, the, with Israel. So they had moved all their ships out, and uh, according to this Fox Battle of Ramona, the, the Russians at the same time were moving in nuclear uh, submarines with nuclear weapons, and they had nuclear weapons on uh, ships in the Mediterranean. The only ship the Americans had in there was a ship that was monitoring Russian communications, but all that's all been withdrawn. When you see the official accounts of the Six Day War, uh, there's nothing that comes off that ship as to what the uh, U.S. intelligence was listening to. Now, the interesting thing, and you hear again, people say this is just coincidence, and um, if you go back to the fact that there are no UFO coincidences with UFOs, I think all UFOs are there for a reason. It's the theory of wow. They want some sort of signal. So on just before the war started, on the 17th and 26th of May, the um, they're, they're planning this and they're going to have a, a ground attack. They're, they're ready to bring in 
um, ground troops into Israel, and at one point they're 20 minutes away. They're 20 minutes from landing, just before um, the um, the Russians go to the Americans on the on the red phone. This is the first time the red phone has been used. This is how this is how um, on edge this whole situation was with the nuclear weapons and this standoff between Russia and the United States. And the um, the I guess the Americans talk the Israelis into calling for a ceasefire, and that ends it, and they call off this invasion. But what they were going to do is, is uh, Israel is attacking Egypt, and then Russia comes to Egypt's defense, and at the same time takes out the nuclear missiles. So on the fifth, on the seventeenth and twenty-sixth of May, just before the war starts, uh, they send a MiG twenty-five over Israel to fly over the uh, the um, nuclear facility at Dimona and getting ready for the attack. Now, the Israelis knew that they that something had happened. Uh, there's really no comment from the Americans as to um, these, these flights, but the Israelis couldn't shoot it down. They couldn't shoot it down with their planes. They couldn't shoot it down with the missiles they had. So they were basically helpless. Now, the weird thing was, so 17th and 26th, on the 20th of the month, so three days after the first overflight, you got to remember, they had nuclear weapons in the Mediterranean at the time, and the plan was to take out Demona, the nuclear weapons. They only had this one chance. They had to get it uh, before they started building nuclear weapons. This is their chance. On the 20th was the biggest case that ever happened in Canada. That was the Falcon Lake incident. Now, people will say the Falcon Lake incident is just a random event. Absolutely. When you start looking at it, there's no way it's a random event. It means something. Because what it basically was, was Stephen Mikulak is, is working as a prospector. This object lands right beside him. Like about, I was at the site last year, maybe 75 yards away from him on a rock. It lands, and again, uh, when I always ask people with UFO sightings, what was it doing? It was doing nothing. It was just sitting. It just landed. And I guess waited for him to walk over. Then the door opens. So did they come out? No, nobody came out of the craft. He didn't see anybody inside the craft. He heard he heard some some voices inside, and he's yelling at him. And he could speak Russian and Polish and uh, all sorts of different languages. And he he thought it was the Americans. He's yelling inside, and nothing happens. So again, here you have a UFO that's not doing anything. It's just there. And then he puts his hand on it, and the door shuts. You can see inside the, the craft, you can't see anybody. And the door shuts, and the thing starts to turn, and it has this vent on the side. And this is unique, almost like the um, the film that was taken when I first got involved. I've never seen anybody else catch it on, on the ground, jumping up like this TV crew did. And that's what got me to go out there. And again, this one, this is the only time I ever heard anybody burn like this. So the, the craft starts to um, turn and starts to spin, and around comes this vent on the side of the craft, which makes no sense. I mean, if it flew across the galaxy, why does it need a vent? And it has this vent, and this hot air comes out. His glove gets burned, his, his rubber glove, and this thing burns his clothes, and he gets very, very sick, and he's throwing up, and the door shuts, and this thing levitates and flies off. So it didn't do anything. It was just there. Now, why would it do this? Why would it, it land there, do this whole thing, and then burn Mikulak? Now, the thing, the other weird thing is, it's not an ordinary burn. It wasn't a burn where he recovered and uh, he went through a bad stage. It recovered, the burn went away, but then every couple of years, the burn would come back. This pattern would come back again. 
and he was going to Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis uh, many times. You Blue Book investigated this. Uh, there was all sorts of investigation. I talked to people at Falcon Lake, and they said there was all there was military people around there. So as soon as he reported that this had happened, uh, these military people were all over Falcon Lake looking at this whole thing. So the question is, what does that mean? Is that tied in? I think that this may be that you have these events that are theory of wow events, like major sort of events that it happens at one place, these, these sort of exchanges and these big events happen. Like Travis Walton. Travis Walton was in the same area, but Travis Walton was taken right during the time when all these nuclear missile or uh, facilities on the Canadian border in all these sack bases were were being visited same time Travis Walton was. So uh, we get this this um, sort of um, thing where you have these these sort of events. And the Fox Bat over Demona was was the the main book that talks about the fact that um, according to the research that they had, the Israelis nobody knew how many nuclear weapons they had, but they had they were building two, and that the one they had assembled the night before the Six Day War, before they attacked um, um, Egypt, and that they had plans that if they if the thing went bad, they were going to detonate is one nuclear weapon on top of a hill to back everybody off because nobody would know how many nuclear weapons they had. So that's the thing. You see this connection. It's not a direct connection, but you see that at the time when the Malmstrom thing happened, uh, you had this nuclear standoff, and the, the Americans had not made known what, the, what they, they were doing, but we knew the red phone was used for the first time. Uh, the, in fact, some of the comments were that the the Soviets thought that the Six-Day War situation was more serious than the Cuban Missile Crisis on their side, that this was a very um, sort of upsetting thing. Um, I mentioned this earlier, the Russians were moving nuclear submarines, surface vessels into the Mediterranean, and they had this ground force that was going into um, to Israel. First time they used the nuclear hotline. Um, and as I said, they were 20 miles away in this landing force until the Israelis called a ceasefire, and then they backed off in this whole plan to take out the nuclear uh, weapons from Israel. Um, and this, and 67 was also the same time when uh, the report was being done for President Johnson. The other thing that I note here, and I'll end this segment right here, is in 1967, the Office of Naval Research. So you see now this thing with the Navy, with the uh, UAP task force, all the Navy sightings, and everybody's asking why just the Navy, what about the Air Force and the Marines, and all this other stuff, uh, why just the Navy. You see in 1967, the Office of Naval Research granted James McDonald a small budget in order con to conduct his UFO research. So uh, there was actually a study going on in the White House on UFOs at that particular time. I'll leave it at that for today, and then we'll go on to the second um, big war in the Middle East. That's the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and the connection there with um, UFO events and nuclear weapons. Thanks for listening. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. 
links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.